invite you to have your copy of scriptures open to Luke chapter 4, and uh, we'll be starting in at the 16th verse. Uh, this will be the account of when Jesus goes home and he preaches uh, a sermon for the uh, hometown crowd. This takes place really about probably a year after or so after Jesus begins his public ministry. Uh, when he started his ministry, it was really in the Jerusalem area in Judea, and he had uh, quite an extensive ministry there. Uh, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not tell us uh, very much, if at all, about uh, the Judean ministry of Jesus, but John's Gospel does. John's Gospel gives us a lot of what happened in those opening months of his public ministry. And uh, one of the themes in the Gospel of John is people slowly discovering who Jesus really is. Uh, they thought they knew who he was. Uh, at the end of, of chapter 2 in John's Gospel, it says that many believed in him. You think, wow, that's great, many believed in him. But the very next line says, but he didn't believe in them. You know, he wasn't trusting himself to them because he knew what people were like. He knew that a lot of enthusiasm takes over uh, what, what ought to be a life-transforming commitment. He, he knew that a lot of, of uh, sort of entertainment value was being seen in his ministry and in his miracles uh, rather than seeing the deeper things, the more profound things of the grace of God. And so uh, John's gospel alerts us to the fact that People were responsive to Jesus. He was very popular, but they did not know who he was. True throughout his ministry. I mean, you, you remember the disciples after the stilling of the storm, you know, that Jesus, peace be still, the wind and the waves ceased. The disciples looked at it and said, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were constantly trying to figure out who is this Jesus? And that's really the task that we have, to know who Jesus is. Now, one of the great dangers to knowing Jesus, one of the great impediments to really knowing who Jesus is happens when we think we know who he is, and we just overlay that on top of it. It's what happened with the Pharisees. They knew who the Messiah was. They knew exactly who the Messiah was. If Jesus is Messiah, then that means he's coming to kick the Romans out. He's coming to pat us on the back. He's coming to tell all the people that we Pharisees had it right all along. And everybody should be just like us. We know that's what the Messiah is going to be like. And so they never quite knew Jesus. They went out to hear him preach and they thought, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to go out there and everybody's going to turn to us and applaud because after all, we're, we're the right guys. And when they got out there, Jesus would say things like, hypocrite. You know, who do you think you are? How, how is it that you put burdens on people and you're not willing to, to, to uh, satisfy yourself? How is it you, you, you in, 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 incur so much burden on people and tell them they've got to tithe, 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 and all the while you're bilking the system for your own gain? He said it in Aramaic, so it was a little different. But that was the gist of what he was saying. They couldn't know who he was because they thought they knew already. And a lot of the preaching of Jesus, a lot of his teaching, is just to shake people up so that they realize that their preconceived notions 
don't fit the Messiah. You know, today we do the same thing with Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the guy who's on my side. He's the guy with all those really cutesy quotes that whenever we're talking politics, I can cite him to support my position. And it doesn't happen whether I'm on the left or I'm on the right. Lo and behold, Jesus always agrees with me. And it's very hard to get to know Jesus when you already know and think you know and you've imposed your, your notion of who he is on top of it and you haven't listened to who he is. So this incident takes place as Jesus goes back home to Nazareth. It's about a year into the ministry. They've heard about miracles. They've heard about his teaching. and They're very impressed by it all. After all, this is our hometown boy. The city of Nazareth, I use city in biblical quotes, um, is, not, is, is a very small uh, habitation. Uh, some scholars say as few as 150 people lived in Nazareth. Some go as high as 400. Nobody higher than that. So it was a very small town. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody had watched Jesus grow up. They were able to say things like, why, Jesus, I knew him when he was a boy. I saw him. I don't know why they have southern accents, but they did. <laughs> All right, I'll change that. Okay. They would say, hey, I knew Jesus. Well, I knew him when he was, he was just a lad. And so I'm working as a father's shop. All right, okay, we got it. Uh, but, but the point is, you know, we know him. We watched him grow up. You know, we don't need any more data. We just need to revel in the fact that he's one of our own. He's our guy. So the day came when Jesus was coming home. They said, he's going to be in synagogue. Uh, he's going to preach in the synagogue. That was, that was a custom back then that if, if someone of, of, of some... Uh, noteworthy status it, it comes into the synagogue quite often the president of the synagogue would say would you read scripture for us would you, would you bring a few words would you say something and, and so th this was uh, entirely uh, uh, just in keeping with the custom of the synagogue and so Jesus was going to go to the synagogue in Nazareth and everybody piled in there because they were going to hear their guy we know this Jesus and it's going to be fun. I mean, they were looking forward to a feel-good worship service. And the music was going to be great, like it is here. The preaching was going to be great. There you go. I'm not too proud to beg. <laughs> but this is going to be a great worship service. And Jesus, and, it, and we're going to go out of there. We're going to be pumped for God. This is going to be a great thing. And so they come into this worship service. And Jesus preaches a sermon. And basically it says, you don't know who I am. Not yet. Because you think you know. But you don't know who I am yet. So we pick up the reading in verse 16. It says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue. By the way... This is a freebie, sort of an add-on. It's not really a sermon. Look, if anybody had a right to criticize the synagogue, it was Jesus. I mean, Jesus was the one who could say, I don't, I don't want to go to the synagogue. There's too many hypocrites there. He was the only one who could really say that because he's the only one who wasn't a hypocrite. I mean, he was the only one who'd go to the synagogue and say, you know, all that stuff, all that talking, all that reading, that's boring. I already know that stuff. Of course he knows it. It's him. It's his word. 
If anybody was able to say, you know, I don't want to go to synagogue. Everybody there, they don't, they don't understand me. They're not, they're not really with me. That was true. If there was ever anyone who had a right to say, I'm not going to synagogue, it was Jesus. As was his custom every week, he was in synagogue. I leave you to do the application to your own life. Anyway, back to the, what we're talking about. Now he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. This was the, 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 the normal posture. You stood up to read and then when you got ready to teach, you sat down and, and taught. So sitting was the posture of teaching. Standing was the posture of reading scriptures. And so he went in. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place that we just read a moment ago. Isaiah, we call it chapter 61 now. And he found that place in Isaiah and he read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that took something to say that, by the way. I mean, we know that when Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit was seen to descend upon him like a dove. Not that he, the Spirit was absent from Jesus, but so that people would recognize that and know that, be taught that Jesus is filled by the Holy Spirit of God. But you know, the first thing the Holy Spirit did after the baptism of Jesus was lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, to be hungry, and tired and exhausted and assaulted by the devil. This Holy Spirit of God resting in Jesus wasn't all fun and games and emotional feelings. It was about being put in perfect concert with the will of his heavenly Father, following perfectly God's plan for him as the Messiah. The Holy Spirit was what was um, motivating, energizing, guiding, leading. It was the very presence of God in Jesus that was working out this ministry. By the way, some of you have probably already noticed, and I'll point it out for the rest of you, this is a Trinitarian passage. I know that it doesn't say Trinity, but the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of the Father, the Holy Spirit is in God the Son. This is why Christians are compelled to speak of one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. That, that's just reflected here. But he says this, that the Holy Spirit of God is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the, 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 the temptation for us is to say, oh, finally, Jesus got around to the poor. All, all my feelings about being a social justice warrior and denouncing poverty and, and telling those rich folks that, that you know, there's something wrong with them and we're going to equalize everything. Or, or on the other hand, he's preaching good news to the poor. He's not giving them a handout and therefore what he wants them is, is to work and we're just going to make a level playing field. Right or left, you know, you're just going to grab onto this and say, oh, he's talking about the... Here's the poor that he's talking about. He's talking about the poor who have realized they have no power, not just in life, but over their hearts and their souls. People who recognize a poverty of spirit. People who recognize that they have nothing within themselves and they are completely empty. And we know this is what Jesus meant because later on in, 
in, in Luke chapter 6, he said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, the, the, the sovereign reign of God, the, the expression of God's power and of his, of his absolute majestic sovereignty, that kingdom of God belongs to people who understand that they can't buy their way in, they can't earn their way in, they have nothing within themselves. Those who have been reduced to a, a knowledge of themselves as absolutely bereft of any righteousness worthy of God, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. And when Matthew records that the Holy Spirit inspired him to say the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit. So we know what, what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the impoverished people. Now this is kind of like really good news because everything about religion Everything about what the, the people were being taught at the time was this. You need to be rich. You need to be capable. You need to be accomplished. You need to be uh, living a life that is, that is earning God's merit and favor and attention. And Jesus comes along and says, I've got good news for those of you who can't measure up to that. I've got good news. Because I'm the Messiah, anointed by God, filled with the Holy Spirit. I bring you good news to those who are poor. But then he goes on, and he says, Proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And I thought through, you know, exactly when did Jesus do this? When did he go to somebody in jail and say, Hey, uh, you know, you're getting out in a week. Well, he did talk to John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, Are you the one who's coming, or shall I look for another? And Jesus essentially cites this passage of Scripture. He says, just go tell John that I'm fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy about who Messiah is, that I'm preaching to the poor and the blind are seeing again, the lame are walking, the dead are raised, that the power of God is at work, the kingdom power of God is at work in me. So he did have that sort of message to John. But I got to thinking about, you know, there were people who were in captivity. In Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us about the people who were supporting uh, the ministry of Jesus. And a lot of this was financial support, but it talks about uh, the women who followed along with Jesus and names several of them. And uh, uh, it says that these women were the ones who were contributing uh, the, the funds. I mean, the, you just needed a little bit of money uh, to, to have a ministry. And it said that these women were the ones supplying that. But he says that one of the women who was a disciple of Jesus in Luke chapter 8, was a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. When he says, and, and when Luke says, and Mary Magdalene, oh, and she's the one out of whom Jesus drove out seven demons. She's the one who was in bondage. She was the one whose life had been captured by the power of evil and the power of death and the power of destruction and this Mary of Magdalene, she is the one that Jesus has set free from her captivity. This is what Jesus does. I thought of the, um, the Gadarene demoniac. The Gadarene demoniac was a fellow, um, of all places in Gadara, who, uh, who lived in the cemetery, in the graveyard, actually. And uh, he lived there among the tombs because he would howl all night they tried to chain him up because he was crazy. He was a wild man. He would break the chains. His life was an absolute wreck. He was in bondage. And when Jesus came by, 
Jesus says, well, what's your name? The demon said, well, you know, um, legion, because we are many, you know, there's a bunch of us. It was short in the story, but Jesus drives the demons out of this man. And one of the great lines of the Bible, it says the people came out of the village and they saw this wild man and they saw him clothed and in his right mind. Jesus had set him free from captivity. You said, that's who I am. The Spirit of God is upon me. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set the captive free. And then he says, and recovering of sight to the blind. You know, and we know plenty of miracles where Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. In John chapter 9, the, the, um, uh, the man who was born blind, Jesus um, uh, heals him of his blindness and he can, and he can see again. Um, there's blind Bartimaeus who calls out, you know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. Everything stops so he can stop and heal this man. Jesus opened the eyes of blind men. Not because he was really great at ophthalmology. He opened the eyes of blind men to demonstrate that he opens our eyes. As we dwell in darkness, he enables us to see the brilliance of the glory of God. So so I'm, I'm also all about recovery of sight to the blind. And then he says, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, the oppressed people would be a lot like the poor people. I mean, if you just think about the, the taxation system at that time, uh, if, if you had a little business and maybe a little property, whatever it was, in order to get the, 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 um, the, the materials to run your business, you had to pay a tax. To run your business, you had to pay a tax. To sell something, you had to pay a tax. And when all that was done, you had to pay another tax. In other words, unlike today, there was a system of taxation that just kept you under economic suppression and oppression. And then that's the way it worked. And here's how Jesus set people free from that kind of oppression. The Bible says that one time he was walking down the road, and he was walking into a village. And uh, uh, you, you remember that Jesus is always going to parties? He was at table, he was reclining at table, and he would say to the host, you know, what do you think about, about this? And he'd tell something about forgiveness. And, and every now and then somebody would crash the party and wash his feet, and Jesus would have to explain what that meant. And, you know, but he's always having dinner parties. He's always having dinner with somebody. And, and so I, I suspect, I can't prove this, but uh, you, you'll agree with me because that's what you should do. But, um, but as he's walking into the village, my suspicion is that everybody in the village is saying, who's going to have Jesus over for dinner? Now, maybe it should be the lead Pharisee. Maybe it should be the mayor of the town. Maybe it should be the number one businessman. Business you know, somebody's got to have, have Jesus over for dinner. And, you know, there's kind of like, well, you know, let's, let's sort of have a contest here. Who, who, you know, who's going to have Jesus over? So they're all wondering, who, you know, where's Jesus going to have dinner? So Jesus is walking down, and he comes to a tree. And up in this tree is a little, little guy. He's a little short, and he couldn't quite see over the crowd. They certainly weren't going to part the ways for him because this guy's name was Zacchaeus. And he was the tax collector. He was the oppressor of all the people. But he wanted to see Jesus, so he, he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And... He's up in the tree, and Jesus is coming by. Now, this next part I can't prove either, but it just makes sense to me. 
So as Jesus is getting ready to walk under the tree where Zacchaeus is, there's a couple of guys standing next to the tree. They look at each other and say, you want them? Yeah, let's. So they reach up and they shake the branch where Zacchaeus is. And he loses his grip and he falls down and he's hanging on to this branch, swinging face to face with Jesus. Everybody's laughing. You'll never get that out of your head again. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come on down, come on down. I'm going to your house for dinner. Whoa. Jesus has gone to the wrong house with the wrong guy. He said he would lift the oppression. He's, he's going to have dinner with the oppressor. And so as they're walking together, Jesus starts explaining some things to Zacchaeus. He starts to tell Zacchaeus about a God who loves him so desperately that he purposed before the foundation of the world to send the lamb to take away his sin. He starts to tell Zacchaeus about a God who is so wondrously generous that he gives us all we ever need. He probably mentions to Zacchaeus that, you know, Zach, that's, that's, a, that's a great house you got, but it's nothing compared to the mansion my father has prepared for you. Now, Zacchaeus, you're worried about a bunch of things, but my father in heaven can take care of you. You don't have to rob and steal and extort. That's who the father is. So that by the time they get to the house of Zacchaeus and they have dinner, this is sort of soaking in on Zacchaeus. And he stands up and he says, folks, I got something I want to tell you. And Jesus, it's all because of you. I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. And the rest of it, everybody that I've defrauded, I'm going to pay back fourfold. One of his friends says, Zacchaeus, you do know that'll make you one of the poor. Zacchaeus said, yeah, isn't it great? Because I'm no longer oppressed by the crass materialism and this silly pursuit of wealth and this idea that I've got to be in control and, and my need for power and, and, and the way I'm, you know, finally I'll be able to look at myself in the mirror. And Jesus set him free from the oppression of wealth. Jesus said, that's who I am. He says, folks, you know, I grew up with you, but what you need to know is I've, I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to totally and radically transform lives. And you're not going to see people the same way anymore. You're not going to evaluate poverty and wealth the same way anymore. You're not going to look at, at, at being uh, uh, free and, 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 and a person unto yourself and controlling yourself. You're not going to think about it the same way anymore because you're going to understand that true wealth and true uh, riches, true power and, and true freedom, they all come from the Father in heaven. You're going to understand that because that's why I have come. And so the scripture says... And this is verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, that This is what Isaiah was talking about. He was talking about me this whole time. 
He's talking about me. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Didn't we raise him right? In our village special to produce somebody like this. Now one of the problems with Jesus is he never read Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He never took a Toastmaster course in how to win your audience over. Because here's what he says. He said to them, this is verse 22, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Let's see a miracle. To quote Herod, walk across a swimming pool. Show me something. I mean, you did it for them. You can do it for us. I mean, we can scrounge up a sick person somewhere. I mean, can't you do a miracle for us? You see, they wanted to see a miracle. If all you want to do is see a miracle, you won't see a miracle. But if out of desperation and brokenness, you long for a miracle, that's when you get the miracle. That's when it happens. These folks wanted to just see a miracle. Jesus, impress us so we have something to talk about all week long. I'll tell you who gets the miracle. The, the guy who gets the miracle is the father brings his son who's, who's, uh, who's um, uh, controlled by an unclean spirit and has seizures and it'll throw him into the fire and his, his dad is just absolutely at his wit's end. He brings his son to the disciples. They can't heal him. And finally, Jesus says to this man, he says, you know, what is it you want? And he says, well, if you can, I want you to heal my son. And Jesus said, what do you mean, if I can? Don't you know that all things are possible for the person who believes? And at that moment, the father does what all of us would do. We start lying. He says, I believe, I believe, I believe. And then he realizes, I'm talking to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I, I do believe, but there's a lot more unbelief. Help thou mine unbelief. Most honest prayer you can find in the Bible. Others honest, as honest, but it, you know, I believe, but you've got to help my unbelief. Because he was desperate, and he knew it. And Jesus healed his son. But the people of, of Nazareth, you know, Jesus, we want to see a miracle. Do something amazing. You know, just, just knock us back on our feet or something. He says, all right, you want me to do that, but I'm telling you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In fact, when Matthew records it, he says, and he could do very few, he could not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. What was their unbelief? Their unbelief was they knew Jesus. They thought they knew Jesus, but they had never known Jesus. And so Jesus puts it to him this way. He says, I'm, I'm telling you this, verse 24, no, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to not one of them, to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman there who was a widow, and she wasn't Jewish. He says, God does these unexpected things. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Healed the wrong guy. He didn't heal a Jew. He healed a Syrian. Now, what is Jesus? He's, he's saying, look, if you're going to know who I am, you only get to know me. Not when you come with all your knowledge and your accomplishments and your degrees and your, uh, your achievements. The only way you get to know me is when you come broken, poor, sick, and afflicted. That's when you get to know me. They didn't care for that. Scripture says that uh, they rose up, and, well, they, it filled them with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Uh, most people say so they could kill him. I, I, maybe it is. Maybe they were just going to kick him out of town, down the hill, so he'd roll long enough to be, really get dirty and, and be a laughing stock. But the Scripture says that passing through their midst, he went away. They couldn't take Jesus because it turned out he wasn't their definition of Jesus. There were people along the way who came to understand. One of them was a thief, a malefactor, bad guy. And this thief and his friend were being crucified for their crimes. And at the last minute, Jesus was added to the list, the execution list. And so these two thieves, one on the left and one on the right, Jesus in the middle, are dying the excruciating death of a crucifixion. And the one guy says, well, if you're the Messiah, and we all know who the Messiah will be, if you're the Messiah, and we all know what the Messiah will be like, if you really are the anointed one, the Christ, we know what you can do. Save yourself. Oh, and by the way, save us too. Didn't know Jesus. The other man said, you know, what are you saying? We're dying and being crucified because we deserve it. This man has done nothing wrong. And all he said was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'll point out he still died. He died on a cross. He died with all the pain and the agony. He died in the midst of a, of a hostile crowd. That day he was with Jesus in paradise. Because when he came to know Jesus, it was at the cross. And he recognized Jesus as the sinless sacrifice for his sins. I desperately want you to know Jesus. And sometimes the hardest thing to break through is the fact that well, we already know who he is. I've, I've gone to church my whole life. I know all the Bible stories. I, I know how he could stick it to the Pharisees and triumph over, over opposition. And I know all that. And, and I, I, you know, I've, I've sing the songs. I feel good in worship service. I, I already know Jesus, do you? Because what I'd like to ask you to do this week is to really get to know Jesus 
as you've never known him before. Return to the cross. Return to see Jesus as he is. The perfect lamb of God crucified for us, our death upon him. To see that we have nothing to bring except in desperation to plead. Remember me too when you come in your kingdom. And then you'll know Jesus. You'll know the anointed one of God. So I just ask you to do that. Some point this week, just pause and return to the cross and get to know him all over again. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, how thankful we are that even coming to know you is the work of your grace. Thankful that the motivation we have to love you and to serve you is because of your spirit working within us. How thankful we are that to know Jesus is not a matter of our working to discover him, but, Father, that he comes to us and reveals himself to us and invites us to know him. And so I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit in this room this morning, that all those here would just be filled by your Spirit and given a longing and a desperation to know Jesus as sovereign Savior and Lord, all for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.